0: But I kept the matter in my heart. And we're not going to keep the matter in our heart. We're going to talk about it. Today, we're talking about the role of confrontation. Does confrontation play a role in interpersonal relationships between Christians? And does it play a role in how we deal with people in the world? For those of you that are tuning in, you'll see I'm messing a little bit with the background. I don't know how to get the original background back. Like, I don't know what the default is. So, it looks like we're just playing around and having some fun with it, I guess. But, yeah, so that's that's all we've got. Uh, I'm going to take this overlay off, but i want to draw your attention to this platform right here where we write a whole bunch of articles uh, going across on the ticker. You can subscribe there uh, to Christianity Now on that platform. And then this platform right here will hold on a second. Let me do this. All right, this platform right there is where we would love you to subscribe. And we'd love for you to subscribe right there. I got to figure out why my videos aren't uploading to there. But any of these, and then this platform right there, Understanding the Time, if you would follow us there, Aaron puts out one-minute videos two or three times a week, and I try to share all of the links to the and pictures to the articles on there. All right, that's all I've got. I'm going to get that off the screen uh, so I can see your comments. And we're going to get right into this. And before we get into the meat of our podcast, we're going to hear a word from our sponsor, Lindsay Fay Dotson at gmail.com. That's Lindsay Fay Dotson at gmail.com. Are you a part of a church congregation? that's seeking effective ways to spread the word about your event. Well, look no further. Lindsay Dotson specializes in designing modern advertisements for churches. Whether it's flyers, postcards, or social media graphics, Lindsay has got you covered. Reach out through a private message on Facebook or send an email to lindsayfaydotson at gmail.com. For more details, don't miss this opportunity to take your message or make your message resonate far and wide. Contact Lindsey Dodson today, folks. We are so glad that you're here. I am. I'm really kind of excited about this one. First off, uh, this on the platform where I release these articles, we really this this article got a lot of traction pretty quickly. Incidentally, for for our paid subscribers on that platform. I just want to let you know that we um, hold on. I have started something new. I have started doing a voiceover and a, a read of the articles, and those are for our paid subscribers. So the articles are going to be free, and uh, but if you want, if you want to listen to the articles like an audio book, but it's an article then you got to pay the $5 a month to have access to that feature. Uh, but anyway, look in it. It's awesome. That's about all we're going to say about that. Uh, good to see everybody here. Remember, be the algorithm for us. John Exum, Robert Leedy, Terry Crooks. Good to see every one of you. Let's go right into this podcast, the role of confrontation. We're going to read the article. I'm going to make some commentary and then – um we're going to look at some comments. We're going to look at two comments that the article garnered from the platform that I released it on. So the role of confrontation upholding Christian doctrine. In contemporary Christianity, a recurring debate centers on the role and necessity of confrontation when it comes to matters of faith and doctrine. Some argue that confrontation divides rather than unites believers, while others posit that it is essential for maintaining the integrity of Of Christian teachings. This article and this podcast aims to explore the nuance of this debate, offering scriptural support for the notion that confrontation, when executed properly, can serve a crucial function in the Christian community. So let's talk about first the importance of sound doctrine. You can't be a Christian without it, you can't be pleasing to God without it. The Bible is replete with warnings about the perils of false teachings and the responsibility of believers to adhere to sound doctrine for instance Titus 1:10 through 11 emphasizes the need to silence unruly and vain talkers and deceivers particularly when their teachings undermine the well-being of a community in similar fashion Romans 16, 17, and 18 advises believers to identify and avoid individuals who cause division and promote teachings contrary to the gospel. Both of these passages underscore the significance of protecting the integrity of Christian doctrine. In doing so, they implicitly support the necessity of confrontation to correct or halt dissemination of false teachings, as Second 2 Timothy 2:16 2, through18 further illustrates, Unchecked false teachings not only foster divisiveness, but can also lead to more significant spiritual ramifications, including the erosions of faith. Folks, it is there is nothing more loving than an individual who will stand in the fire of the wrath he receives, from pointing out heresy and false teachings. If somebody loves you enough to weather the storm of that confrontation, to explain to you that something you're teaching is false or something you believe is false or something that you are hearing taught from the larger group you're a part of is false, then they love you very much. It's not just a professed love, it is a practiced love. And you have a good friend. It is not unloving. Sadly, the weapon that folks use against people who have this courage and love is to say that they are unloving. I that bothers me to no end. And I think the reason this is on the rise Is because of the sissification of Jesus and the way that true masculinity is framed. Let's talk about the role of confrontation. I I was going to offer some more commentary there, but we're going to get into that enough. The role of confrontation. Confrontation may seem contrary to the Christian ethos of love and unity at first glance. However, the Bible presents numerous instances where confrontation is not just advisable, but folks is mandatory. Jude 3 and 4 exhorts believers to earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. And I will tell you this, I didn't put this in the article, but it might be worth going back and looking at. Let's go to Jude and I'm going to read this. I'm going to make an inference that that I didn't bring out, but I probably should have. delivered unto the saints, beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation. Jude wanted to write to these people of this wonderful common salvation, but he said, it was, it was more needful for me, instead of encouraging you in this common salvation, it was more needful for me to urge you, yea, command you by the authority of Jesus that you should contend earnestly for the faith. I'll go back to the article. Jude 3 and 4 exhorts believers to earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints, especially in the face of individuals who distort Christian grace and deny Christ. Here, confrontation is framed my brethren, as a duty, a form of spiritual stewardship for every believer. Moreover, 1 Timothy 1, 3-4 outlines how maintaining pure doctrine often requires confrontation to prevent the propagation of fables and endless genealogies that lead people away from true faith. Second Peter chapter 2, 1-3 through three, further elucidates the dangers of false prophets and teachers who introduce destructive heresies, warning that their judgment will be severe. It's clear that the New Testament doesn't advocate for a laissez-faire approach to doctrinal integrity. Rather, it encourages active vigilance, which may, and I say now actually, will include confrontation. But now let's talk about the manner of confrontation. And I'm not, I'm not sure how satisfied I am with this first paragraph. I'm going to read it and then I may interject something and, and mitigate something that I said. Or at least not mitigate it, but explain it or expand upon it. While the Bible does affirm the role of confrontation in maintaining doctrinal purity, it also provides guidelines on how such confrontations should occur. Ephesians 4.15 advises believers to speak the truth in love, thereby setting the tone and method of confrontation. Galatians six one suggests that if someone is caught in wrongdoing, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness. Now, let me comment here a moment about Ephesians 4.15, speaking the truth in love. Um, speaking the truth in love is an elliptical phrase, and when I speak the truth, it is in love of the truth, not in love of someone's soul. And the ramifications of that, or the, well, we'll say the ramifications, that's not the right word exactly, but it'll do to the right word shows up. So the ramifications of that is simple. If I speak the truth in love of the soul, I may be inclined to compromise the truth in order to win the soul, which is detrimental to my love, period. But if I speak the truth in love of the truth, I will not compromise the truth in favor of the soul, which actually foments and and bolsters and strengthens my love of the soul. The first thing we have to do if we want to reach souls and love souls is love the truth. I think about Psalm 119, 109, 104. Somebody looked that up. Through thy precepts, I gain understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. The first thing I want to do is make sure that I'm right doctrinally and I'm speaking the truth because I love the truth. And because I love the truth, the truth then tells me that I need to speak to people who are souls and I will, I love their souls because I love the truth. So if you don't have a good understanding of Ephesians 4.15, all all that kind of breaks down. Now, I think I oversimplified it, and it sounds like I believe that Ephesians 4.15 is only speaking of our tone whereby we speak when we teach the gospel. And if you get that from Ephesians 4.15, and that's how you use Ephesians 4.15, speaking the truth in love, then you are woefully misusing and uh, that verse and not utilizing it to its full potential. Anyway, I just wanted to put that there. Um, all right, good deal. Many people believe it is unloving to speak out against sin, but First 1 Corinthians 13.6 says that love rejoiceth not in iniquity but rejoiceth in truth. You know, wisdom from above is first pure, then it's peaceable. You cannot be peaceable to the unfruitful works of darkness. Just something to think about. Very good very good comment there, Robert Leedy. All right. So, therefore, the focus should not be solely on the act of confrontation but also on the spirit in which it is done. And I stand behind that. If you're out here arguing for the sake of arguing because you want to win arguments, you may be really, really, really good at winning arguments, but you will be responsible for many different people littering the floors of hell. 1 Corinthians 15:33, which warn us to avoid those who may lead one astray. Absolutely, Terry. Yeah, in Ezekiel 3, the watchman must Worn souls in jeopardy jeopardy so the confrontation we we focus not on the confrontation not solely on the act of confrontation rather but also on the spirit in which it is done confrontation devoid of love whether it's love of the truth or love of the soul or a combination of both and compassion is counterproductive and may even be damaging The goal should not be to win an argument, but rather to win a soul. So, in summary, the Bible offers a balanced view on confrontation in the context of upholding Christian doctrine. While confrontation is deemed necessary for preserving the integrity of the gospel message and the well-being of the Christian community, it must be executed with wisdom, love, and humility. The ultimate goal of such confrontation should align with the overarching Christian mission to guide individuals toward the path of salvation offered through Jesus Christ. Therefore, being loving and maintaining doctrinal fidelity are not mutually exclusive of one another, but rather they are complementary aspects of Christian life. By understanding the complexities of this subject, Christians can navigate that fine line between confrontation and compassion, all while upholding the integrity of their faith, folks, This is an important lesson, and it's an important lesson especially for gospel preachers and how they present messages from the pulpit, but then it's also an important message for uh, the people in the pews, because if if every—and I'm speaking purely from the standpoint of one who is in Christ—if you're listening to a gospel sermon, and that, that gospel preacher gets a little impassioned and maybe doesn't use the perfect tone that you think he ought to use. You need to observe the Passover and understand that he's human. And we need, and it's a good segue into the next section of the podcast because I, we were asked, the, the I was asked rather about the article, a really good question about confrontation and, and how you deal with believers versus non believers and if um if it if confrontation has anything to do with with accountability um if proving i'm right if in proving right excuse me if in proving i'm right i treat you wrong i gain nothing yes and and i would i would i mean i'm i'm in agreement with that regardless of from whom it comes but that's one of the biggest hypocrites i've ever seen in my life uh that said that. So, yeah, but but yeah, I mean he, that that's a correct statement. And Dan Winkler says it is impossible to be right in doctrine and wrong in disposition. Hold on a second. It is impossible to be right in doctrine and wrong in disposition in that doctrine in that doctrine dictates disposition, gotcha And I am really loathe to judge other people in disposition because it's such it's such a matter of judgment and incidentally it's kind of a form of narcissistic entitlement whenever somebody says well I know that you told me the truth but i just don't like the way that you you said it who 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 governs who 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 died and made you lord of the universe that you get to govern the way other people speak. And I will go back all the time to Jesus. The same people who say stuff like, if in, if, if in proving I'm right, I treat you wrong, I gain nothing. Um, then those kind of people that use that as a virtue signal, which they do, and they use it to come after people people that are impassioned they it's it's like you they don't know Jesus and I I'll, I'll, I'll explain to you what I mean by that here's the question i was asked um well, hold on just a second right here should there be a difference in the way we confront brethren and those who are not yet in the fold of Christ but teach false doctrines well the answer is yes Absolutely, yes, there should be a difference. And I'll talk about that in a moment, but I want to answer this second question. Is there a link between confrontation and practicing accountability amongst ourselves as members of the Lord's church? Well, that's Galatians chapter six, verse one. Brethren, if any man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest you're also tempted. So that that idea in the spirit of meekness Meekness is being dangerous yet only using that to protect the weak and innocent from tyranny from from um, malevolence, okay It's strength under control, but it's so much more than just strength under control okay It's the idea of having a sword and a bow but not using them except to protect the defenseless, to defend the defenseless, so on and so forth. So that does not mean that every time you talk to somebody who is not doing what it is they're supposed to do, it doesn't mean that you handle them with kid gloves all the time. It doesn't mean that you that you don't just call a spade a spade and be like, hey, look, you're... Doing X, Y, and Z, and the Bible calls that this, and you're going to go to hell for eternity if you don't change your ways. I I, I see, I see these people on Facebook, and it's just sometimes when they talk about things and they have these disagreements, and it just it makes me puke in my mouth because I would rather somebody speak to me in what is perceived to be a harsh tone. But be genuine instead of speak to me in sickly, sweet, pseudo-saccharine kind of prose and then talk about me behind my back as if I'm a worthless piece of trash. Because I've seen that. I've been, a, I've, I've been party to it unbenoxed and I've corrected it in my life, and I don't allow people in my corner that do that. In fact, I excise them from my life, people who are disingenuous. They're gone. I don't have time for that. And the reason I don't judge a lot about people's tone and such is because, one, I know who Jesus is, and I read this passage of Scripture in Jude, and John, I know, I know you don't. I, you're just giving credit to Jody Apple. I got you. Um, all right, now listen to this. Verse 22 and 23. No, just verbal. Verse 23, um, 22 and 23. And of some have compassion, making a difference and others, save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. Um. If I were in a house and it was on fire and the firemen come in and try to save me and I was acting a little bit irrational, if he open-handed slapped me in the face and said, you stupid idiot, what are you doing? Let's go. And he kind of bear hugged me and rough-handled me and got me out of that house. You know, I wouldn't be mad at him. I think we forget just how important it is to save somebody from the fire. I'm not saying that the fireman needs to start out manhandling and slapping. But I'm also saying that that's not a bad outcome if the fireman slaps and manhandles the person they're rescuing, if they indeed rescue them, all right? Um, you know how many times ribs are broken whenever CPR is administered in the field? Quite often, and I'm going to tell you, if I had a heart attack, God forbid, and somebody did CPR, and in saving my life, they broke my ribs, I don't think that I would be mad at them. Something else. Something else. If I had ingested poison that caused all of my muscles to clench up, including my jaw muscle, but somebody had the antidote and all they had to do was push it down my throat until my reflex, swallow reflex kicked in and then I would be saved. What if they took a crowbar and broke out all of my teeth to get that antidote down my throat? I'm alive, but I don't have my teeth anymore. You see, you see where I'm going with this? Vody Balkum is an ecumenical uh pastor. He he's a reformed theologist, Calvinist, I can't remember which, and he says a lot of things with which I greatly disagree, but I've heard him give a lecture on Christians and the eleventh commandment which is, thou shalt be nice. Folks, we are in war. If there is somebody over whom you have some influence, over whom you have some amount of sway, don't start out on a level of intensity that's a 10. Start out with a 2. But if you have to turn it up to a 10, then so be it. The problem is, is these panty-waist, sissified onlookers who are Christians, supposedly, they will look at you and the intensity with which you speak and treat your friend over whom you have sway that you have been suffering so long and now you're just, this is a last-ditch effort and you're trying anything you can to punch through that triple wall of cognitive dissonance, selective perception, and selective exposure, and they will clutch their pearls, and they will virtue signal, and they will say, you're the bad guy because you're not nice to that person. When this person is actively involved in a, in a relationship of fornication that adulterates their marriage, and he, and he is sinning against God and against his wife and his children, They are more offended by your tone than they are about the damned behavior, the damned state of the one who is offending God. Folks, there's going to be people bust hell wide open because of this. Jesus was a very confrontational figure. Incidentally, I have. Um, 10 verses here, 10 examples, rather, of times where Jesus acted in such a way that if he were a gospel preacher in any of our mainstream, quote-unquote, mainstream churches of Christ, he'd be fired. Think about Jesus and the Pharisees on the Sabbath in Matthew chapter 12, 1 through 14. Jesus confronts the Pharisees when they accuse him of violating the Sabbath. Jesus doesn't defend himself. He challenges their understanding of the law. He says, I'm not going to submit to you because you don't understand the law correctly. How many of my brethren would say, now, why couldn't he just acquiesce? Why couldn't he just go along to get along? He's such a controversial, provocative figure. What about cleansing the temple? Oh, I can't tell you how many times well, you know what? If we were just more loving like Jesus, then so many more people would be Christians. And I'm like, when you say loving like Jesus and acting like Jesus, making a whip out of cords and flipping over tables and running people off is not outside of the purview of that description. In all four Gospels, Jesus drives out the money changers and the animal sellers in the temple. He declares the temple should be a house of prayer, but it's been turned into a den of thieves. How dare he? He is so confrontational. And that was mean. Did he not know that the that the money changers and the animal sellers in this temple, they offered a valuable service to people who had to travel long distances to come to these feasts and make these sacrifices? I mean, go read Deuteronomy Ah, I should have this at the ready. Go read Deuteronomy, where it talks about uh selling all of your stuff, all of your tithe, and getting money. And then when you get to Jerusalem, you can purchase whatever your heart desires in order to give to God to sacrifice. That's where this money changers and these and this temple uh animal sellers come that that's the root of it. It was it was to serve a purpose and it was a good purpose, but Jesus said, you've turned, you've turned what's supposed to be a house of prayer into a den of thieves. But what about Jesus and the woman taken in adultery? Rusty Kirby says, the people who are afraid to offend someone in sin don't realize how bad they offend a God. And Terry Crooks, you're absolutely right, and I'm going to bring that one in in just a moment. Uh, Jesus called some blind guides. Oof. Oof. Yeah, he did. Man, I think about Matthew twenty three twenty three. That's not in the list, but it should be. Well, in fact, the entirety of Matthew 23 should be in the list. But, um, well, it is, number four, sorry. Um, but Matthew 23, 23, Jesus says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint, anise, and cumin, and you leave undone the weightier matters of the law. Justice, mercy, faith. These ought you to have done and not to have left the others undone. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, you blind guides, for you strain at a gnat and you swallow a camel. Man alive. Well, let's talk about this woman taken in adultery. John 8, 3 through 11. Religious leaders bring a woman caught in adultery before Jesus, testing him on whether or not she should be stoned. And instead of playing their stupid game, he acknowledges it, in my opinion. It doesn't matter what he wrote on the ground. The reason he wrote on the ground is to disconnect and show them the foolishness. Like, this is, I'm so far above this, and this is so inconsequential to me. I'm just going to ignore you and I'm going to write on the ground. Now, I think he absolutely wrote something that they knew what it was and they knew the intention of it. But for our studies, a few couple thousand years later, I think the fact that he wrote on the ground is much more important than he wrote on the ground, because he's just showing them, I'm not playing your stupid game. He said, if you're without sin, you can cast the first stone. He did not, I mean, he, he just took the wind right out from him. He, he this would not be a, you, you mean you didn't validate these people? Don't you know that woman was caught in adultery? You didn't deal with that? No, I'm not. I didn't deal with that. I dealt with it by saying, all of you that are without sin can cast the first stone. And and, you know, they just kind of melted away. And I told that woman, I didn't excuse her sin. I told her to go and sin no more. She don't have any accusers and I don't accuse her. I didn't witness it. So go and sin no more. And of course, number four is Matthew 23. I covered that one. And then confronting his own followers. I love this one. John 6, 53 through, through 66. Jesus gives a difficult teaching about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, the, the bread of life discourse. Many disciples, and, and that's an understatement, all the multitude deserted him except for the 12. And he turns to the 12 asking if they want to leave him as well. And I'll never forget. What Robert R. Jordan, Robert R. Jordan, Robert Jordan is the author of my favorite sci-fi or a fantasy, high fantasy epic, The Wheel of Time. I'll never forget what Robert R. Taylor said uh, in a lectureship, the Truth in Love lectureships in Pulaski, Tennessee. He he read that verse and he said, and I have been told by people I trust who understand the Greek that in essence, what Jesus was saying when he turned to his disciples was, are you going to leave me as these people left me? In other words, in the same manner. And I thought to myself, yeah, I don't know. (laughs) There's people you trust that know the Greek. You're you're a good enough source, Brother Taylor. Anyway, sorry, I wax nostalgic for a moment. Uh, But my point is this. Think about at the congregation where you preach, if you said something that made somebody mad and they left, and the people that stayed, if you looked at them and said, Y'all gonna y'all gonna stay or go? Make up your mind. <laughs> You're walking papers, buddy. All right. What about the confrontation over tradition in Mark 7, 5 through 13? Terry, this is where the one you show you brought up comes in. Mark seven, five through thirteen. Jesus confronts the Pharisees and teachers of the law over their tradition, referred to as Corban, accusing them of nullifying God's word for the sake of their traditions. Basically, what would happen is, in order to get out of honoring their father and mother, anything that they, any money that they would use to take care of their father and mother in their old age, they would give to the priest. And so they would go and declare Corban And tell the their father and mother, say, Look, whatever I was going to give you in your old age, I've given it to God. You can't get mad at me because I give it to God, right? Right. Well, then their parents would die of neglect. And then they would go back to the priest and said, Hey, I'd like that money back. And the priest would give it back less a fee. So even though it was less a fee, it was still much cheaper than taking care of their mother and father. You blind guides, hypocrites. I'm telling you, man. And, and Jesus acknowledged this, and in the account in Matthew chapter 15, he said, he, he made a public example out of them. Peter said, hey, don't you know that you offended the, the disciples? said, don't you know you offended The Pharisees, when you said this, and Jesus, instead of saying, I'm so sorry, let me make it right, he said, you let him alone. They be blind leaders of the blind, and if the blind lead the blind, they're both going to fall in the ditch. And let me tell you something, the ditch in question, it was a latrine. And Terry, that's Jesus called some blind guides. Matthew seven twenty one to twenty three would do more than offend people, correct? And then Facebook user, oh, I, there I mentioned it. Oops, we're not supposed to mention the the platforms. Love and rebuke are not antithetical. Uh, Leviticus nineteen seventeen through eighteen. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your brother and not bear sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. It is not unloving to identify and rebuke sin. It is actually unloving not to identify and rebuke sin. Amen. And also, I I rem hold on a second, I've lost the thought now. Yes, y'all, I can't remember which which chapter this is in, in the book of Mark, but you remember the rich young ruler, at least I hope you do. The rich young ruler, he, he was respectful, he ran to Jesus. He didn't just holler at him and say, hey man, come over here, let me holler at you. He ran to Jesus, he knelt, he called him good Master, Rabbi, acknowledging a certain amount of of authority, uh, so he was he was respectful. He was also real. He Mark chapter ten. Thank you very much. He's also real in that he said, whenever he said, "What must I do to inherit eternal life?" He Jesus he told him the truth. All right, he he told him the truth. You know what? I lost my sermon. He was rich. He was respectful and he was real, rich. He was rich in this world's good, which meant he was, there's all kinds of attributes. He was rich in this world's good, which meant he was competent. He was probably well liked. He was probably dependable. He was probably an upstanding moral person. So he was rich. He was real in that whenever he asked, what must I, it was respectful. In other words, he he came to Jesus. He knelt, called him good master, all that good stuff. And then he was real. He was honest. He was really honest because Jesus, to his question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said, well, what about these commandments? He said, I've kept all these from my youth up. Jesus didn't, didn't correct him. So evidently the man was telling the truth and he was real enough to know what he was willing to do to inherit eternal life because, and this is this is for our podcast, this is the point of interest Jesus, the text says, beholding him loved him, and then told him information that was guaranteed to run him off. What if it was noised abroad at the congregation where you preach? That a rich person wanted to place membership, but you told them something that was guaranteed, to run them off. I would dare say a lot of the preachers in the Lord's church today or actually in the, the church of Christ denomination church would get their walking papers. You got me. All right. Now, so you have this confrontation on tradition. Uh, you have the rich young ruler um, in which I, I've already discussed. And now you have what about Jesus and his family? In Matthew 12:46 through 50, Jesus challenges traditional family values, stating that whosoever does the will of the Father in heaven is his family. I mean he actually says, who are my mother? Who is my mother and who's my brothers? All of you here that do the will of the Father, you're my family. So what about rendering unto Caesar that which is Caesar's? Well, Matthew 22:15 through 22 Jesus is confronted about whether or not it's lawful to pay taxes. His reply is, render unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, but unto God the things that are God's. In other words, he doesn't get caught up in this political game. He says, listen, I'm identifying the government as a God-made institution You have to identify the church as a God-made institution, and we have to render to both that which is its due, and that is not popular today because what happens, my gospel preaching brethren, whenever you start trying to explain how that morally and ethically casting your vote for people who promise you that they're going to castrate children and make it easy for sexual molesters to do their thing and make it, and and they promise they're going to murder more babies. And you say, there's ethical and moral considerations there. I understand if you can't vote at all, but you for sure cannot vote for that party, which is promising these things. You are labeled as uh, an outcast, a person who's just out for politics and you're too caught up in worldly things. (laughs) That's right. Uh, Scott Cook says, I'm late. You must have been so confrontational that you ran everybody off. You got that right. And hey, Missy Malone, it's good to see you. All right. Now, what about the Samaritan woman at the well? You know, I've been told and this ain't got anything to do with color of skin or race, but I've been told, hey, listen, don't don't go over there and door knock. Because if we convert people from that area, well, they're they're low on the social echelon and they'll actually be a drain to the congregation and not a help. Hmm. I, do I need to <laughs> Do I need to comment anymore on that? In John chapter 4 verses 7 through 26, Jesus talks to a Samaritan woman breaking several societal norms. He also confronts her about her multiple marriages and current living situation. Oh man, so yeah, they, they, he in fact Jesus with this situation couldn't win for losing. Some people would say, oh, "Look how virtuous he is talking to this woman who's quite frankly of ill repute and a Samaritan. Oh, he's so virtuous." But then other people would say, I can't believe he's talking to that woman. Doesn't he know that she's of ill repute? Doesn't he know she's a Samaritan? So he couldn't win for losing. It's kind of like in, in Matthew 11 when he says, to what shall I compare this generation? You're like kids in the marketplace. And some of the kids say, hey, we, we lamented and you did not mourn. And, 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 and we, we piped, we played the pipes and you did not dance. You can't win for losers. Like John the Baptist came, and he lived out in the wilderness. He wore rough clothes, and he ate locusts and honey, and they say he's got a demon. He's demented. But then when Jesus comes, and he acts more normal, and he actually is a man among the people, well, he's a glutton and a wine bibber, and he puts his stamp of approval on the publicans and the sinners. Like, all right. Well, I mean, what do you do? Well, I tell you what you do. You do what the Bible says, and everybody else can co-kick rocks, and you tell them, I've seen what makes you cheer, so your boos mean nothing. Oh, Tony, that's so confrontational. Yes, it is. How do you think Jesus would treat these people? How do you think Jesus would treat these people? He would treat them pretty rough. Now. Here's a comment that that was on the the article. I really appreciate your points from scripture. It got me to thinking that perhaps the reason some Christians are opposed to confrontation is because they so rarely, if ever, see confrontation done in the biblical manner. And you know what? Some of y'all are gonna have to find this. I'm not gonna look it up on the fly. But do you remember with Paul and Barnabas? and Mark, and Luke, that Paul and Barnabas had a a falling out, of which it's described in Scripture in the book of Acts, the contention was so sharp, and they ended up going their separate ways. This was a confrontation that ended in separation, and I don't think any sin whatsoever was committed. That would be something to explore, I think. And Galatians 2, that's right, John. Galatians 2 with Paul and Peter. Withstood him to the face. Caught him out publicly. Thank you very much, Barry. Barry. Barry's on the ball for my Bible today. Uh, Acts chapter 15, 36 through 41. I, I I would have I would have bet you a dollar against a dime that it was not Acts chapter 15, but I wasn't sure. And so I'm glad I didn't make the bet. Anyway, so this this person that commented, I really appreciate your points. It got me to thinking perhaps the reason some Christians are so opposed to confrontation is because they so rarely, if ever, see confrontation done in a biblical manner. We see a lot of confrontation all around us, mainstream media, social media, etc., But rarely is any of that done in the manner God commands. It's vitally important when we, when Christians, have to confront someone that they do it how God has commanded. Otherwise, we end up undermining the teaching we claim to be standing for. And I will go to Matthew 5 and Matthew 18. If you have trespassed against a brother and he don't know it, you, even before you Satisfy your obligations for liturgical service, i.e., worship. You lay your lay your lay your offering down at the offer off. Lay your offering down at the altar, and go make it right with your brother. All right, so that that requires a confrontation. It requires something uh, uncomfortable. But then Matthew chapter eighteen, if a brother has sinned against you then you and 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 he hasn't come to you he might not know then you have to go tell him and and reconcile with him that requires confrontation and if he won't hear you you got to take somebody then take a group then it goes all the way to the to the to the congregational level but it's at the individual first and and this this commenter on the place where i put out all the articles They've hit the nail on the head. We don't see this behavior modeled anymore. We used to see it. I believe that is why some of these great giants of faith in our past were able to disagree on so many matters of academic pursuit, and we knew that they had disagreed on so many uh, matters of academic pursuit, is because every time they got together— They kicked it around. They argued it. They scrutinized it, and they modeled the behavior and was able to remain brethren. And now we have sequestered ourselves, and I think social media is in large part to blame for this. We accepted social media hook, line, and sinker and never applied prudent our knowledge and prudence based on the wisdom of the ages. To extrapolate out a couple of decades to figure out where the church would be with the influence of social media, we could have, we could have stopped some of this and nipped it in the bud. It would have taken a lot of teaching and 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 defense and cutting things off of the path. But I think because of the advent of social media, it allows people to create religious and spiritual echo chambers. And now, if you challenge me on what my particular viewpoint is on the gift of the Holy Spirit, you're a false teacher because you challenge me. I'm going to draw a line of fellowship over these matters of academic pursuit or scruple. We have to model this behavior. If, and if somebody doesn't start, if somebody doesn't break the cycle, And on the congregation, it would have never happened. Sorry, I got to finish that thought. And if somebody doesn't, if if elderships don't start leaning into this, one of the absolute worst things that an eldership can do, I mean, if you really want to kill a congregation, so there's two ways to kill a congregation. There's running everybody off and you don't have anybody, or you lead the congregation in such a way that it denominates it delineates from the simplistic gospel that is Jesus Christ and it becomes what I refer to as a Church of Christ denomination, which I know congregations that have done this, and it's because of how they're led. They allow a a subset of the congregation to rule by proxy through the eldership. And the eldership in order to keep the peace they do not allow any difficult teachings they don't allow any confrontations and the worst most egregious sin that you can commit is having an argument folks let me tell you something that is that is that is a one way ticket to a church of christ denomination that is a religiously and spiritually codependent congregation, and Facebook has made it possible. Facebook has made it possible. We have a lot of keyboard cowards in the world, not warriors. Warriors don't hide. You got that right. Confrontation delayed is confrontation multiplied. Jordan B. Peterson, you got that right. Well, we know this intuitively. A stitch in time saves what? You gotta you gotta tackle something when it's when it happens. Because if 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 I can darn my socks and just take one stitch, if I don't, then it's gonna take nine stitches if I let it go. What about what about a splinter? If I get a splinter in my finger and I don't take care of it, and listen, I don't like y'all, I don't like pulling splinters. It's great when they when you can pull them with a tweezer. But what about if it's too far down in there and you got to take that needle and dig that splinter out? Folks, I hate that. Like, it bothers me thinking about it right now. And I mean, I, I've got a pretty high pain tolerance, except for stuff that goes on on the tips of my fingers. Whenever I was a child and, and I had to go to the doctor and they wanted to do a white blood cell count, you know, they just prick your finger. I'd pitch a fit. I like stick me in the arm don't prick my finger i just i don't like my i don't like the tips into my finger i'm so knock on wood i don't want to appear superstitious but um i, I don't ever need to get diabetes but diabetes i sound like Wilfred brimley i don't need to get diabetes because it would be a certain kind of hell on earth getting my finger pricked anyway now you now if you've ever wondered about that in, in relation to me now you know all right, but what about a splinter? Do you wait a week to get it out, or do you get it out now? Something to think about. That's it. I don't care about your booze because I've seen what makes you cheer. Um, so we confrontation delays confrontation multiplied. So, yes, we, we've got to nip it. we got to take the Barney Fife approach to interpersonal relationships. Some things you just nip in the bud. We got to make sure that we're not fomenting and promoting codependent uh, behavior and relationships, and we we got to make sure that we're not acting in a manner that's entitled. And once we run it through those filters, well, I've I've got to go talk to this person. Just go be be brutally truthful and brutally honest and nip it in the bud. And if somebody loves you enough to come to you and have a confrontation then you treasure them because they are they are highly valued in your life i'm going to read a selection from the book of proverbs this book this 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 section of scripture has helped me more in my interpersonal relationships and how I conduct my ministry, and how I uh, deal with criticisms and stuff like that than any other passage of Scripture that I can think of. Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. Let another man praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. A stone is heavy and sand is weighty, but a fool's wrath is heavier than both of them. Wrath is cruel, and anger a torrent, but who is able to stand before jealousy? Open rebuke is better than love carefully concealed. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the the kisses of the enemy are deceitful. A satisfied soul loathes the honeycomb, but to a hungry soul every bitter thing is sweet. Like a bird that wanders from its nest is a man who wanders from his place. If you can assimilate these script these verses, this is Proverbs twenty seven one through um, eight, then you will be able to adequately employ the attitude of your booze mean nothing, I've seen what makes you cheer. You will not be craving validation so much that you allow yourself to be wrapped up in a codependent interpersonal relationship because you'll be so satisfied. It doesn't matter if somebody validates you and it's sweet as a honeycomb, it'll make you sick. And you're like, I don't want that from you. I have all that I need, because if you are craving that and you don't understand what the Proverbs writer is trying to teach us here, then you will be like a bird and you will wander from your place seeking that validation that you're not getting or you think you're not getting. And what happens to a bird, little baby bird that wanders out of its nest? It falls onto the forest floor and either dies from the impact or it dies because of predators and or exposure to the elements, folks. Proverbs twenty seven one through eight. There's beautiful, and it has helped me more than any other scripture I know uh, withstand the barrage of the uh, attacks and such and such like. I just don't care about you. Well, Tony, that's no, no. Understand what I mean? I care about your soul. I care about your well-being in this world. But if you're not in my immediate vicinity where you can harm me physically, go kick rocks. There's nothing you can do to me. Period. That's the attitude we have to have. And I know we went far afield from the original uh, the original uh, title, The Role of Confrontation. But you have to be, you have to have a certain amount of self actualization in order to be a practitioner of godly confrontation. If you're weak as opposed to meek, then you do not need to practice confrontation. You need to figure out how to be meek. And that's all I've got. Confrontation is a good thing when it's done right. It's commanded, I would go so far as to say. And it's commanded that we do it right. Folks, I really appreciate every one of your uh, comments and your uh, contributions to the live stream. Um, I, I, I forgot to do this. I guess I need to put this up. This is a tip jar where you can send a, a, a monetary donation to Christianity Now. Now, confusing is the dickens, I know, www.nearcharches at gmail.com. Okay, Near Churches is the email from the brand that we had while we were in Arkansas, Northeast Arkansas, and I just haven't changed the email because I've Anyway, doesn't matter. This is the email, or you can buy me, buy me a coffee at www.buymeacoffee.com forward slash Christianity now, or you can become a patron for as little as $5 a month. And then of course the other, uh, the other platforms, and I will put the overlay up right now so I can show you right down here is, uh, this one understanding the time we'd love for you to follow us there this one right here gets you all of the podcast or all of the articles and then right here gets you access to the some extra videos and stuff that we do. We would love for you to go to this one and then follow us on this one at Christianity now and that's all I've got. I want to thank you so much again for your comments. Um, oh right here, Terry Crooks. the Bible is clear about the fact that if we stand for the truth, we will offend people. You know, Terry, It's a, a good comment to end on. It blows my mind when people say to folks, just be a little bit more like Jesus, and you won't offend folks so much, and you'll draw more people to God. And like, I get it, right? But, and it's true. It's just not true in the way that they use it because Jesus was the perfect teacher, the perfect evangelist, the perfect, uh, Rabbi, he said the perfect thing at the perfect time in the perfect way with the perfect tone using the perfect words and they still killed him. Do you think that I can be better than Jesus? That I can be just like Jesus but only better and I can say the truth that the world hates in such a way that they'll follow it and not kill me? And with that, I bid you adieu. Podbean, Apple Podcast, Spotify, tune in radio. Subscribe to the podcast and be the algorithm for us. Thank you so much. God bless you. This has been Tony Brewer with Cogitations, and we'll catch you on the flip side.